As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to another episode of Awakening Code Radio. I'm one of your hosts, Michelle Anderson, and I'm doing a recording to add on to our podcast. This was a unique podcast that we did with our guest, Stephen Jenkinson. And after we were live on air, Eric and I felt that we needed to have a little disclaimer on this podcast. Both of us felt that it was time for another conversation about where we're all at in our belief systems. And we found that this episode, while there was a lot of great information in there and Stephen is an amazing speaker and author, and he has really a lot of golden nuggets in his books. We think Stephen brings forth great information and thought-provoking questions about death and dying and grief and how we live. And at the end of this show, we ask a yes or no question. I'm not going to repeat what the question is. I'll let you listen to the podcast. And Stephen's answer took both Eric and I by surprise. So I just want to share that his answer isn't reflective of what either Eric or I feel. So I'm going to leave you with that, have you listen to this podcast, and I'm going to come back at the end of this and share a little bit more. Thanks for listening to Awakening Code Radio. You're listening to Awakening Code Radio, mind-expanding, heart-opening, talk and music to raise your vibration. Some people consider it the shifting of the ages. Others see it as a whole new paradigm for humanity. But whatever you want to call it, it's hard to deny that we are in a moment of immense change, a moment challenging us to wake up and live life more consciously. This is Eric Rankin. And I'm Michelle Anderson. And you're listening to Awakening Code Radio. Where the conversation is always about raising the vibration of love, compassion, happiness, forgiveness, stewardship, health, and peace. Thank you for joining the conversation. This is Deepak Chopra. Hi, I'm Marianne Williamson. Hi, this is Greg Braden. And you are listening to Awakening Code. Awakening Code. Awakening Code Radio. Thank you so much for tuning into Awakening Code Radio. Maybe you're listening live in Laguna Beach or in the nearby area. 
on your land-based terrestrial radios, your FM radios, thank you, or possibly live streaming. We have a lot of people all over the world that tune in from all different time zones at streamers, but most of our listeners are podcast listeners, tens of thousands of them, and we are so grateful for all of you. My name is Eric Rankin. We call our show Conversation to Raise the Vibration, and we um, are not here to preach to you in any way, shape, or form. We are on our own path of awakening, of expansion, of figuring things out, of dropping into the deeper meaning of purpose of our lives. Why are we here? And how did we get here? And what is our true purpose? And right beside me, as usual, Michelle Anderson. Hello. Hello. How are you? Um, There's that um. (laughs) (laughs) Whenever you you say the, uh, yeah, there's a little pause (laughs) in an um. It's like, well, you've either been very busy or you're tired or you have a lot on your mind and maybe it's all three. I think it's all three. There you go. And excited for tonight's show. You know, this is, um, this is a topic that I am very fascinated by and, and I, I feel like it's not talked about enough. Absolutely. Well, or talked about kind of ever in most the, the conversations. Way that, the way that our guest talks about it. And and I don't want to take too much time talking because last time we had Stephen Jenkinson on the show was in October, I believe, of 2017. Oh, my. And that show was called Illuminating Perspectives on Death. And he, he just really blew our minds, I think you could say, and and... I felt like we talked too much on that show. So I want to let Stephen do more talking this time because he's he's the whole reason why we're here listening to this topic. And, and even though we do have conversations and share our stories as well, Stephen has such a an illuminating perspective. But tonight we titled our show, New Lessons on Dealing with Grief in a Me First Era. And that that title, it drew me because it's something that Stephen had talked about, I believe, in his most recent book, The Reckoning. I think is I think that's where I pulled that from. So, Stephen, are you with us? <laughs> I'm entirely with you. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love I love how you speak and you share. You're so authentic, and and it's it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. It's an honor to have you back on the show. You're touring now. In the United States, is this is this correct? You're are you in? To, you're talking to us from Topanga Canyon tonight, but normally you're in Canada. Is that right? I, I'm less normally. <laughs> I'm being at home is the exception. So yes, I've been on the road almost constantly since the middle of uh, August. Wow. Wow. Well, I know that you were detoured from being on the road uh, for a bit because of what's been happening in the world. And so uh, how does it feel to be back on the road? Oh, I mean, you got me at the end of a travel day. So my first answer would be pride. (laughs) That's that's a legitimate answer. But I mean, it's a mixture of a lot of things. The fact that, that people are willing to come to something that we call Nights of Grief and Mystery calls somebody's judgment into question. I don't know who was mine or hers. Or it, it's a very odd draw. That's the first thing. And and so what a privilege it is that they lay their money down and more importantly, their evening on the off chance, you know, taking a break from Netflix long enough to take a chance on the real thing. I heard, and, you, uh, I heard you say that in your opening and one of the trailers, I think, where you said, thank you for taking a night off of Netflix to come and see the real thing. Real FaceTime. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course, I should say we're by far and away not the only real thing, not at all. But 
I think I said something like we're a shard of the real thing. And so anyway, we're we're out there and uh, we've been through, I don't know, five countries since then. I don't know that we're making up for lost time, you know, the the plague days and so forth. I think I think what we're doing is we're acknowledging amongst ourselves, on my end of things, that we're all considerably older than we were, over and above the three plus years that we're talking about. Because depending on when they're taken from you, three years can seem like a lot more than three years. Uh, it sort of forecloses on a lot of other possibilities. So I would say I'm in that category now, that I'm I'm under persuaded above my own longevity. And so uh, I'm not really settled, you know, on, on this as a kind of course of action. I'm, I'm possessed of a sense of urgency that's, uh, it could be mistaken for desperateness. It's, I don't think it is, but it does a good impersonation of desperate sometimes. I get that. Um, from my own experience and from people I've talked to that I would be surprised to, it's just like everything feels so different. And I go, yes, it does. Things feel very different, and I think they will for a long time. But I also think this is a, a new realm. We've stepped into a new arena where we are asking or stating these things. That stranger, uh, I was just out in Joshua Tree, and she just goes, everything just feels so different to me, like repeating the old patterns. And we were talking about the holidays, and I'm like, I get it. And I think our show is perfectly timed. You know, I, I, pers- I myself am not persuaded that things have by virtue of the onset of a plague and then the softening around the edges of that plague somehow represents a fundamental uh, change, an opportunity, no doubt. But uh, I don't think by any stretch of the imagination that things have turned some kind of magic corner and that we're, we're at, you know, I, I don't know what, who we is right now, but I'll just use the word that we are somehow possessed of a degree of insight that entirely escaped us before the plague. I agree, and I wasn't really insinuating that, just that there is a collective what is happening. Everything is so different. So, yeah, pregnant with opportunity and yet feeling almost kind of cast adrift at the same moment. Maybe something like, I'm going to use a word I never... Uh-oh. Uh-oh, we did. Did we lose you? It sounds like... Have you lost us? Oh, we did for a second there. He said, I'm going to use a word that I haven't, and then you disappeared. Okay, very well. Maybe I wasn't supposed to use the word. <laughs> I was thinking of the word upheaval, and I thought I think that's too—that's too pregnant with possibility for what I mean. So I used the word downheaval instead. Maybe that's a, as good as a word as I can think of to describe what seems to prevail here on what I called the softened end, but by no means the ending of of the uh, of the plague, as far as I know. You know, when you talked about the sense of urgency that. It sounded like you were you were implying that you felt you had a sense of urgency to do this tour. Yeah. And I feel that same sense of urgency to get the message out that I that I hear you share. The message that you share, for me it feels like there is no other time than now to get this message out. And in doing some of my homework for this show, uh, I I have to admit I wanted to have more time to do more homework because you you do fascinate me and <clears throat> I haven't stayed as current with um, as I had wanted to with some of your your newer interviews or things that you've talked about um, since the last time I saw you I did get to meet you in person at your nights of grief and mystery tour and I was I just was enthralled with 
how you merged the music with what you shared in your message. And every one of us left that auditorium saying, wow, like we were transformed and transfixed from the message that you were sharing and where, where it fit into our own thoughts and our own feelings about the subjects that you talk about that are really deep. And in doing this homework, I found an interview with you that was done by Scott D. Miller, the founder of ICCE. And he interviewed you in, I think it was May of 2020. And one of the things, I love the way he introduced you, saying that you're the founder of Orphan Wisdom School, a place for people yearning for a deeper, more connected life, one that embraces all aspects of what it means to be human, and that you're also a teacher, an activist, a storyteller, and an author. And he really, he, I could tell he really gets you. And your book, Die Wise, really uh, affected him. And that's what made him want to reach out to you. And I, he had read it after, after it came out in 2015. And, you know, how it focuses on the phobic way our culture approaches death and dying, which we talked about in our last show with you. And since that last show, Eric and I were, were sharing in that last show, you know, what we've been dealing with, with our elders, our parents. And since then, one of our parents, my stepfather had taken flight. And mm-hmm. on January 1st of 2020, he left his body and it was poetic in, in so many senses in that we were able to have those last moments with him. And Afterwards, I felt like, you know, this was right before March of 2020, dun, 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 the, the before, you know, I felt mm-hmm. like the just before. <laughs> yes. I felt like in a way he gave me a gift because of what we see and what we've seen happening with the, you know, you can't be there by the side of your loved one. And right. this, you know, it, it just, it was a gift. So listening to your conversation with Scott, um, I, I encourage all of our listeners to go listen to that interview as well, because I think you did a, a great job in... You want to tell people how to find it? Expressing. And if you, I think people could just, you know, search on Stephen Jenkinson with um, Scott D. Miller of was ICCE, and you'll find it. Um but one of the quotes, I wrote it down because it, it, it made me pause when you said, our mortality is a knowable thing, not much known by us. Mm-hmm. And you were talking about how death is inevitable, but we don't live like it is. We don't talk about it. It's, you know, the elephant in the room. So I just appreciate the information that you're getting out because this is upon us right now. I actually would love to dedicate this show to one of my friends who also just crossed over on Saturday. And I was informed of this while I was in New Orleans at a wedding. So I, I, I'm really feeling that, you know, the, the witnessing of the way um, my friend who was his partner was was so desperately clinging to him staying on earth and yet his soul i feel was ready to go based on you know the circumstances and um in this in this talk you talked about there's no sudden death 
I don't know where we want to start with this conversation, Eric. You're, you're looking at me like, I don't know. I Well, it's a big... So, listener, one thing I'm guessing is listeners might not be fully up to speed right. of what it is that we'll be talking about. And Stephen's work is truly addressing the elephants in the room that we ordinarily don't want to talk about. Grief, talking about dying, talking about this thing that the, the truly only inevitable thing of our experience we say death and taxes we've all heard that but really you don't have to pay your taxes we all are going to our physical bodies are going to expire so i think that that's important that people just know our listeners know that this conversation is about that but um and then looking at life through the lens when you are willing to look at it and Stephen, are you there yes is yeah. that a throw okay <laughs> well you know um what I'm going to say now might seem um, oppositional in some sense to what you just said. Okay. I don't think, I think it's it's meant to further what you just said. Okay. But it, it goes like this. Uh, apropos of the death and taxes observation, that cranky old thing that so many people are wont to say, in a dismissive or jocular fashion, by the way. Um, you know, it, it's not true on both sides. The taxes thing, I agree with you completely. And I like the way you uh, you modified the declaration second time through, and you said uh, our physical bodies will expire. But I would I would imagine out loud on behalf of us all that that's not at least what I mean by the word dying. Okay, dying after all is a is a huge whole person event, and there's an element of it, a physical element, as you mentioned. That is more or less a given. The time and the way, not so much. But the fact is, it's certainly. But there's the rest. And we're gonna, we should take our cue from the English language for a change, since we're speaking in the language now, and make a very simple grammatical observation. That the verb to die in the English language cannot be used in the passive voice and make any grammatical sense at all. The only way you can use the verb to die in the English language is as an active it is something that you do. Every time you use the word, that's the way you use it. It's not the way you mean it, most people listening now, but it is the way you say it. And this is one of the reasons that there's so many uh, ludicrous analogies and alleged synonyms for dying. But this is why, because we, we're, we resort to synonyms so that we can invoke the passive sense of dying that most of us seem to have. And dying is what happens to us. There's nothing we can do that we we shrug and go, if you will. But in actual fact, if, if we take our cue from the from the language and dying becomes something that we do and not something that happens to us, then it raises any possibility which has nothing to do with, with Ouija boards. And it's this. It's possible not to do it. It's possible to refuse to do it. It's possible to not know that it's on, it's on you to do it. It's not only available to you, but it's incumbent upon you that you undertake the work of dying. You know, in, in some time prior to a terminal diagnosis would be a very good idea. And this is a, a notion that's more or less completely lost to the general public in Anglo-North America, I would say, where, you know, most people are still waiting as if, uh, as if it's uh, like a kind of Haley's Comet sort of a thing. But, in, but it's very possible that you forego entirely the work of dying. And then you, you come to your dying time, petulant, uh, miserable, uh, depressed, uh, sedated, and the rest. But all of these are, are the consequences of not undertaking the work. They're not the consequences of dying. 
And man, if there were ever a distinction that's important to make for us now, that would be it. That there's nothing inherently despair-making about dying. The despair, in my view, comes from the fact that people are dying in a death-phobic time and place. And it's the context that makes it impossible. Or I could say it differently. Years and years ago, I was interviewed. One of the first radio interviews I ever did. And, and he says to me, something sort of, our topic of the day is, uh, what, it, what is it about dying that's so hard in our time? And I said to him, no, I think our focus is, what is it about our time that makes dying so hard? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't see any, any reason to change the emphasis, you know, 15 or 20 years after I originally said that. It still seems to be a, a terrible burden uh, that people mistake dying in the death-phobic West for the way dying is. But it's, of course, it's not true the world over. There's all manner of cultured people for whom dying is not only a fact, but there, there's no grievance. Uh, associated with it whatsoever. There's a there's an obligation. There's a challenge. Uh, there's a, an, a a whole realm of cultural activities. You know, the care of the dying and the care of the dead. We should mention that make these cultures what they are and give them the the kind of deep running soulfulness that make them the object of more than a little um, envy uh, from people in our corner of the world. Every day, we rise challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Now back to more Awakening Code Radio. I don't want to over-speak anything. I love listening to you as you explain them and as I bring my own, you know, thoughts to the subject and the way that I have thought about them. I love hearing you bounce back. Well, let's look at it this way. Let's dissect it or think farther or look at this. Uh, I love that when any guest does that and you've written books about this process big not small little pamphlet books but big books <laughs> from your experiences and i uh and i wonder i for some reason jimmy buffett's song living and dying in three quarter time uh i don't know if you've ever heard that song but he talks about the the navigation at the same time of the more you live the more comfortable you are with dying and the more comfortable you are with dying the more you live is that it, has that kind of come to you that way? I mean, that because we want to avoid it, we're neither fully living or fully dying because we're we're afraid of one so much that we can't put our toe into the other side uh, as or as much as maybe as p- possible for us. Yeah, I take the the, na- the notion of the sentiment that you're describing, but I myself would never use the word comfortable as a goal when it comes to dying. No, and here's the reason. 
uh, it's very close to that the big A word that is, of course, all over the place and has been since the 60s, where you're trying to get to acceptance. And, and more often than not, acceptance is viewed <clears throat> as a defeat of your desire to live. And so this is where I have to go out on a limb and say, you know, I was in the death trade a long time, and I never felt it compassionate, uh, sane, uh, or necessary to extend to people the notion that the only way they could successfully die is that they give up on being alive, mm. that they turn away from it in some fashion, that they turn against it even, which acceptance goes very far down that road. So I would offer this to you instead, uh, taking the, the elaboration that you mentioned afterwards. You know, I found this for myself. I can actually testify to this personally, that um, I nearly died of spinal meningitis when I was a very little kid. I, I remember it quite emphatically. I, I don't think I remember, quote, the near dying thing as, of course, as the adults around me would have lived it. But it's certainly present and how always has been. But because it happened so young, I, I'm not sure that the life deepening power of the event was that all that available to me. And so it seemed to, to wait in me until I was working in the death trade myself. And as I did so, as you can well imagine, part of the collateral damage, part of the the um, fringe benefit of working in the business is that you begin to become deeply acquainted. I mean, almost unnaturally acquainted with the nature and the manner and the tonality of your own particular death. It just comes around. And uh, when it does, it uh, deeply challenges your your foothold, your toehold in the normal pleasures, if you will, the normal yeah, small p pleasures of life. It really does. It, uh, and you go through a, a remarkable period of doubting whether or not you have the capacity to take seriously what you're seeing at work every day, since your life doesn't seem to carry the same deal of gravitas uh, in it as dying people seem to be obliged to deal with. So that's an interim phase. And then if you're lucky and you work real hard, and I don't know what else it depends on, something comes to you, and it's miraculous. And it's this. You glimpse the end of your life. And some consequence of doing so is that you you grow more fond of being alive, not desperately clinging to it. I mean genuinely more fond of it. You, you begin to, to in your saner moments, at least, consider that being alive is, is a fairly good deal. And all the conditions therein are secondary to that. And there's nothing Pollyanna about that, I can, I can absolutely assure you. But one of the things it does is you become uh, an author. Not, uh, that's not the right word. You become an acolyte of ending. That's what you become. And so that endings are not a betrayal. Endings are not life turning on you and therefore you turning away from it. Endings are, it turns out, as God-given as the rest of the story. And with that, you kind of kiss your life directly on the lips, if you will. Perhaps over and over again, if you're very lucky. And I don't hear acceptance in, in what I've just described. Yeah, maybe other people do. Uh, I don't hear defeat. I hear uh, a willing, a deep desire to be alive, given the givenness of dying. And when that extinguishes, I suppose, you know, the body takes care of that with enough suffering. I imagine that finally goes. But this is an, it turns out to be a wonderful practice for um, the genteel art of coming nobly and with some sense of the moment to your particular fraying and swaying and ending. That is so beautifully said, and it resonates deeply with what you're sharing. I've, I can honestly say over the last few years, I've had a lot of thoughts of 
you know, how bad does it have to get before people's eyes are really open to the, to- the totality? Yeah, yeah. Of, of what we're really seeing. And there have been times, I will admit, almost embarrassingly, that I have wondered if I really want to stick around to see how it's all going to turn out. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, not that I would ever take my own life or anything like that. Um, but I, I, I see the depth of, I guess you could say, heads buried in the sand because... The nervous system can only handle what the nervous system can handle in each individual. And so it's, you know, a process of witnessing what's happening on many different levels. I'm really curious about, you know, your book, Reckoning. Mm -hmm. Um, It it sounds like it was some emails between you and Kimberly Ann Johnson. Is that how it started as emails going back and forth? It was actually one email. And, uh, yeah, the timing was. I didn't know Kimberly at all. I didn't know her work. I didn't know her. She wrote to me. Uh, I don't usually see, I'm not the first person to see the emails that come into us. And so I think it was my wife who'd seen it first. And I was just in the process of going along with my wife's rather adamant demand that I withdraw from the fray in terms of, you know, interviews and, and personal appearances and all those kinds of things and see if I could become a, a citizen. You know, it's an ordinary civilian. And um, I was just in the process of negotiating with myself how to withdraw from the, all of that. This came in. It was a request to, uh, to have a, a one talk with me. And uh, I said, rather than say no to this person, let's say this is the last one. And so we agreed between ourselves that that's what we would do. And, and we got on the call. I don't think it was even a week later. It was a few days. And... Um, as I said, I didn't know. I didn't know that she was in the degree of distress and extremity that she was. Uh, but it was a podcast, and so I I didn't have my glasses on, uh, and therefore I didn't see the detail in her face. But I was led to understand afterwards that she had been weeping the entire interview for ninety minutes. Wow. I mean, not sobbing. Uh, I would pick that up, obviously, but but certainly it was um, it was palpable for the people who were watching. But it was lost on me, so I'm sure I. Looked at the very least insensitive during the process of things. But I, I engaged her at the level of her deep despair that had come around, largely as a consequence of the fractures, fractures that were beginning to show in her public life, her professional life, and also in her private life around the uh, huge divisiveness that the, uh, the plague generated. That's, the, that's how it began. Mm-hmm. And then later the same day, after the interview, we did get a thank you note from her, wherein she said basically she was unraveled. And uh, she just thought it would be useful if I knew that. And so I wrote back and I said, look, uh, let's get back on the horse tomorrow. Same time, same station. You may have no audience for it. That doesn't matter. Let's, um, let's make this, this unraveling, the subject that we address when we get together tomorrow. Before, as I put it, being okay moves into the spare bedroom again. And, uh, and she agreed. We did. And she said these two things were the most viewed um, things that she had ever produced, like by a margin of five or six hundred percent, something like that. So there is something, I suppose, about the combination of the nakedness of it and the sorrow of it, for one, that it was palpable, that it was real, that it wasn't manufactured, and that it didn't seem to come from some kind of intensely personalized suffering that wasn't available to anybody else. And then there was the layer of the fact that she was a, a younger woman, but no longer young. And I was an older man, 
not yet quite home. And there's some dynamic there that was, I suppose, very available to people and, and compelling in a time where these, these are considered to be divisions and not opportunities for people to meet those kind of differences. And, uh, and we looked at, well, she listened to the transcript, I think is what happened, mm-hmm. or somebody in her office did. And the notion came forward to make a transcript of it. And so she sent me the transcript, and I knew, you know, 10 pages into it, there was some doctoring, some attached to it. But this was more than just readable, that this was consequential, yeah. that something had really happened, and that it survived being transcripted. And so I agreed that, that maybe there was something there, at which point she proposed that we have a meeting of subsequent Sundays going into the end of this. So this is just about a year ago right now. Five subsequent Sundays, one each devoted to the books that I'd written and to the Nights and Grief and Mystery Project that I'm on the road with right now. And so that's what we did and recorded those two. And um, and the magic, is, in my estimation, was still there. And then she wrote an introduction for the thing once we realized this is probably a book. And then we wrote a, a, a kind of acknowledgement or a blessing uh, directed one to the other uh, without either of us seeing what the other had written. So we both present at the same time. And the way we wrote it, it turns out to be the way the book is concluded. And it came out, uh, we self-published it, so it came out maybe six or eight weeks ago, something like that. And now people, I'm hearing, there's something about that format of a dialogue, a kind of real-time dialogue that, uh, that is, has a degree of devotion that, um, that characterizes it, that people find compelling and yeah. available to them. Yeah. And I guess very timely as well. So that's the backstory of the thing. It, I'm so glad that you shared that with us because it feels to me like what many people are seeking right now is somehow making sense of it all. It, you know, I hear a lot of people saying, I feel like I'm living through a bad movie um, and, and I just want to wake up from it. And yet here we are awaken it. And a lot of times I feel like we've stepped out of time. What is time? You know, a lot of times... We talk about the difference between linear time and the space in between and, and all of that. But one of the things that I'm sensing from your dialogue with her and, and how you were able to help unravel her was that it gave her, I'm sensing, I don't know this, but I would think that it gave her that, that passion back to live, to truly live in this, this moment because that's what you do. You, you, you're so grounded in just being on earth and, and the privilege that it is to actually have a body to be on earth right now as we watch all of these things unfold. Um, Eric and I, for the past three years, have been having what we call speakeasies at my house, um, probably about every six to eight weeks, huh, Eric, yeah. about that? Yeah, something like that. Where, you know, if you're sick, you don't come. But what we are encouraging our friends to do is to stay connected and to keep living and to be in our hearts and feel our hearts pulsing out that passion for life without a clinginess to it, but just celebrating joy. And to, to me, it's like a healing salve to, to my own heart as I witness so many different layers to what we've you know, where we're at right now. And 
I don't want us to get too far into this topic before we share that people, if they want to come see you, Stephen, you're here. It looks like this is the end of this part of your tour, huh? You're in Los Angeles and Topanga tomorrow night, in Los Angeles Thursday night, and in San Diego Friday and Sunday. And and then are you going back to Canada at that point? I don't know where I'm going to go. I'm not that driven to go back to minus 20 degree temperatures, you know, but... uh but I may, yes. So that is the official end of the tour as we know it right now. That's true. Wow. So people do have a chance to come see this really unique tour where you pair your your writing, your feeling with incredible music that just, to me, it feels like some sort of a ceremony or a journey you take us all on when, when we're live and we're all together celebrating that. Every day, We rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Now back to more Awakening Code Radio. When it comes to, you know, what has been happening in these these last few years, what do you feel is the is the message that you want to leave our audience with with these last what is it? We have about 20 minutes. This isn't a 2-hour interview tonight where you get to go enjoy the rest of your night. <laughs> um last time you were with us it was about almost a 2-hour interview, but this time we're having a conversation for an hour. So, um you know, I my feeling is there's so much that you share, so much wisdom that you share that and and I know our audience is really seeking something from you tonight, you know, whether it's hope, um where do you see this all going and and how, how can you um I don't know, I guess what am I trying to get at? It, impart your wisdom to our audience in in terms of how how to get through and 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 have that passion for the rest of our how much time we have left in these bodies uh-huh. okay that is a compound fracture of a question there must have been about six of them in there probably so uh, <laughs> let, me, let me pull them a little bit apart if i can deal with at least a couple of uh, adequately well the first thing and you're very kind with the acknowledgments and the description of what you imagine my capacities to be but, uh, you know, it's important that we all bear in mind that these people that we hold dear or we hold high in our lives, either from the distance or very close, and these people are as capable of living out a train wreck in real time as anybody is, and um, and not free of that, and not above it in any sense of the term. So if anything's human, I mean, my job is, it seems to me, to live in such a way that the, everything human isn't foreign to me. And... Uh, you know, on, on a good day, I remember that. And on the rest of the days, I don't. You know, and I get lost and I forget and or worse. And uh, there's nothing to brag about, obviously. Uh, it gives me a certain degree of companionship, but not the kind that we really seek out for ourselves. So that's one. And then two, how do I see the whole thing working out, I think you said. And my answer is, I have no friggin' idea. Um, nor do I feel particularly obliged to have the great overview in, from the sky, you know, the God's eye view thing either in time or in space. And so um, I'm, a, I'm appointed. I have a kind of uh, entry-level job compared to something like that. 
and that's to keep track of my little corner of the world as best as I can, mm-hmm. which for me is, is in fits and starts with what I would call Anglo-North America. And, um, you know, Anglo-North America has a fairly ragged and uh, deeply untrustworthy beginning to it, which is, uh, among other things, very puritanical. Now, that word puritanical is often uh, attributed just to things sexual today. But Puritans were no joke uh, then, and they're no joke, ancestrally speaking, now. So uh, those of us who either claim or disparage our Puritanical ancestry do so at our considerable peril, I would say. Mm. Because th- that stuff is very uh, active. And for example, um, if you think about the, uh, the regime in the, uh, in the Internet in particular... Uh, that allows people to literally disappear from view in a matter of seconds by virtue of some accusation of a misstep and so on. If you track the tenor of the accusation, you can be quite overwhelmed with the self-importance of the accusation, the self-certainty of the accusations, the absolute lack of any hesitation there, and moreover, a sense that some grievous wrong has been righted simply by leveling the accusation in the first place. All of these are characteristics of Puritanism. So it doesn't have to be a sexual misconduct situation at all, although the Puritans love that, of course. But um, it's, a, it's a dark, dark time. And I think this is one of the things that's now, sadly, available to us in the immediate backwash of the pandemic day, is that we, you know, we, I think some of us are aware and alert to the fact that this was an opportunity without parallel over the last hundred years, say since the last, since the Spanish flu. And the opportunity was to see ourselves in full flight, you know, as we were in 2019, and try to, for once uh, in real time, question fundamentally whether 2019 represents the high watermark of our cultural and spiritual capacities. And if it doesn't, and if things are indeed getting worse, pandemic or otherwise, it raises the question, what the hell are we waiting for? What is things getting worse going to do that things being bad hasn't done? And for people my I'm I'm in my mid to late 60s now. So people my age and people younger are going to be confronted with the following scenario if they haven't already been. This is coming, folks, to a psyche near you. And it goes like this. Somebody half your age or one-third your age will come to you, probably unannounced, and in some fashion or other ask you the following question. When you were my age, did you know what was happening? (laughs) And the secret desire of the questioner is that your answer be no. And why is that? Because if you didn't know what was happening and the world actually got worse on your watch, somehow that explains the fact that the world got worse. And that can be lived with by by your heir, by the people that come after you. But if the answer is, for the most part, yes, people did know what was happening when we were your age. If that's the honest answer, which I believe that it is the honest answer, then this becomes virtually impossible to live with. If you knew what was happening, please tell me, please explain to me how things went. They went went the way they did anyway, as if knowing somehow wasn't enough. And that becomes, I think, an unlivable inheritance for them. Those are the stakes today as I'm speaking to you. The second question those kids are going to ask, what did you do? And we answer that question every day. Every day, whether you mean to or not, you answer the question, what did you do when you learned what was happening? So I'm doing my best on my better day to answer that question explicitly. That's why I'm on the road, wearing myself out and the band out as well, um, for no, no, no clear-cut consequence. Of course, we move on to the next town. We don't know what happened. We don't know what people do with the evenings and so forth. 
the same with writing the books, the same with doing the interviews and the public appearances and so on. This is part of my answer. Do I think it's, quote, fixing anything? No, I don't think it's fixing anything. But my job really is not the solutions part of things. My job is the state of affairs. My job is to do everything I can to lend my abilities in the direction of a clear and unequivocal declaration of the, of the nature of things, the state of things. And my understanding uh, about why I'm doing that is the clearer things are, the harder it is to crawl under a rock and wish it all to go away. Mm. And I think the great grief bypasses that are available to people now in terms of personal development and life coaching and all these matters, you know, I'm afraid the world is the first casualty of self-improvement. I know that will not endear me to many people who are listening, but so be it. That's the way it appears to me, and I've watched this very carefully for a long time. Self-improvement in and of itself does not lead to any betterment in the world around you. There's nothing given or inevitable about that. The act of translation still has to be made. And it's not a given that after all these years of focusing on personal growth, that you will you know, automatically and magically one day turn all of your skills to the greater world and, and finally forget about you know, fixing yourself. Okay, maybe I'll stop there. <laughs> Let's come up for air a little bit. That's um, and I and I guess what was rattling around in the back of my mind. If most people would answer the question honestly, yes, I saw what was going on. What do you think the second half of that answer to how come you didn't do anything would go in that conversation? Well, in, in my characterization of the conversation, it, you don't you don't get accused. You get asked and questions are more consequential than accusations are accusations are for that those internet witch hunts that Thank i described you. earlier yeah i think uh, i mean they're easy to come by and they're understandable but uh, what i'm characterizing here is a young person's deep and even desperate desire to understand themselves to, to be deriving from coming from people who are worthy of coming from that's what they're after whether they say it or not might be a different thing but that's what i see and and I mean, this wouldn't be a question to them if the worthiness was a given. But given the state of affairs, our worthiness is scarcely a given, I think you'll admit. I'm always so speechless after you talk because I'm processing so many of the, the different emotions that I feel in listening to you share so wisely. I really appreciate respect and admire that you ask questions rather than come at things from an accusatory perspective and pointing out the many traps that I think we fall into when we do this witch hunt thing. How do we heal the divide with all of humanity, with with just our own essence? How, how do we do that? And I think you, you you answered it already by, you know, asking the questions. Perhaps, but I mean, I'd even be more practical and say, healing the divide requires the preliminary step of setting up your little tent in the valley of the division, mm -hmm. not occupying one side of the valley or the other, exactly. but actually inhabiting the division itself. So you live, you live out and you desperately learn the consequences of being too right on one side or the other of any particular issue. That's powerful. Just being too right. Yeah, definitely. And I have fallen into that trap sometimes during this, this journey that it definitely takes navigating and reflecting on, you know, how, how much do we 
how much do we push? How do we stay neutral? What What is that show we did? Something about uh, something about neutrality. Oh yeah, yeah. neutrality amidst polarity. Yeah. But I I love the the analogy of meeting there and there's I I forget who the quote is Rumi or Washu or someone that like in in the midst of right doing and wrong doing, mm-hmm. I'll meet you in the middle. Mm-hmm. You know, let's let's acknowledge where we're all at rather than standing firmly on only our side because we just happen to believe it's all right by our experience and things that we've learned. And the other person, if they don't agree, must be wrong. That's where you start the conversation is we both think we're right and both think the other's wrong. I love the idea of let's let's meet, whether you call it, I love the analogy, let's meet in the valley between the two um, is, is a very powerful metaphor. That's what I meant earlier when I said, you know, do everything we can to live in such a way that nothing human is foreign to us, including including the opinions, if you will, that will never be ours. They'll never be ours, but still the capacity to to abide by their presence mm-hmm. counts for something. Generally speaking, don't you find that the, the more the, the more our feeling tones go extreme the more the, the extreme ends begin to resemble each other, even though they seem polar opposite. But their extremity is more similar than their differences are different. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's what makes us human. Wouldn't it be a boring world if, if we were all robots? And what is, what is your reflection on, on what that looks like when it comes to technology and, and you know, the whole... AI perspective and the push for digitization of everything. Is there hope? Oh, I don't think so. No, um, you know, we have the we have the English word automaton, which is not a bad way of describing what you're asking me about. Mm-hmm. And the word automaton, if you investigate the actual etymology of it, the first part you could translate roughly as self. And the second, the root of the second part of the word is mother. Automatons are literally self mothered. And last time I checked, that would be something bordering on a a crime against nature, that you mother yourself, that you are self-created. Can you even... And and we're kind of being led down that that path uh, in a unique, in all the shows we've done here, when Michelle asked, is there hope? And and I was, I I think any other guest we've probably ever had was like, well, of course there's hope or, or something. And I'm, and I'm like, no, I don't think so. Uh, then what do we do from that standpoint? Do, do we take an action? Do we, what, what, what happens from a statement like that? Well, you, you've turned the question into a hypothesis. What would we do if it were true? In actual fact, this is an observation to be made, not a hypothesis to be offered. The observation would be, I would change the wording of the question slightly and say, well, what are we doing? Because that's answerable. That's not hypothetical. What are, what are we doing is the proper answer to the question, what will we do? Because we're answering the question every day, you see. So these, this is observable. And I think there's a certain blessing available to us an unwelcome one, because it doesn't seem to promise anything. But promises are for uh, politicians at election time. They're not for the fundament of life. It's not there to promise. It doesn't owe you any promises, you know. But, I mean, if you want to get extremely practical for a minute, then recognize, okay, better I tell you a story. I know we're, I think we're at the end of our time here probably with this story. Five minutes, yeah. Okay, very good. So, so I, I'm in um, Arizona some years ago, 
and I'm with a mutual friend and, and a, a, a Zuni jeweler, and we're on the Zuni Reserve. And we had, we knew him off and on for a couple of years, so we were, we were comfortable with each other, and we're at his house. And he's telling me that he's just, you know, agreed to have a website, and he got some website designer to do his site and everything like that. And then, excuse me a second, <laughs> I've been speaking an awful lot the last month or two. And then um, uh, the, the website designer suggests that he should be making a film so it's more interactive and da da da, more multimedia. You see, about uh, that would help characterize his work and where it comes from and its native ancestry and all the rest. And he does. He employs the uses of uh, of one of these drones. You see, he puts a drone up in the sky and has him walking through the desert, uh, finding semi precious stones, and and then going to the studio and working with them. So this is not the story he told me. That's the preamble. This was the story he said. So he went to show it to his mother, who is also. Uh, a jewelry maker from a young age and a traditional woman, a traditional Zuni woman. She watches it attentively until the time when that friggin' what they call it again? Uh, that machine, the drone, goes oh. up in the air. Yeah. At which point, with no announcement, with no explanation, she gets up from the kitchen table and just walks away. And he can't quite understand, you know, she's not feeling well and what is it, you know. But she doesn't come back. But he finally turns this thing off, goes to find her, and says, uh, what? She said, well, I really liked it up until that time when you were flying. She said, you know, we're not supposed to be able to see things from there. That's all she said. Mm. There's something about that that I utterly treasure and respect. And it sounds to me like me, which is probably <laughs> why I appreciate it. And I think she's absolutely onto something. There are things we can do that we're not supposed to be able to do. And that AI stuff will bring forward every conceivable striving that humans dream of for themselves. But most of these dreams will not turn out to be life-affirming. Most of these dreams will be life-exceptional, which is to say a way of lifting us up from the, the limit that life entrusts us with and shames them and damns them instead. That's where things are headed. I'm fairly persuaded of it, so I'm not completely heartbroken that I don't get to live long enough to, quote-unquote, see how it all works out. I mean, nobody does, of course, but uh, this is my hazarded guess. So at the very least, if I'm going to recommend any something in the teeth of that storm, it would be to, for God's sake, begin to recognize that the limits of all kinds that are available to us were entrusted to us, not imposed upon us. Mm. And we are children of a troubled time, God knows. And it seems to me we're going to have to make a decision and live it out, whether or not being a child of a troubled time amounts to a punishment of some kind, some kind of psychic or karmic punishment, or represents some kind of assignment that we were born to, uh, describing the, the fact that apparently a troubled time such as ours would appear to need the very particular kinds of people that are available to it now. And so maybe it's not an affliction. Maybe it's an assignment. Molly, <laughs> this is, it, I, I never know what I'm going to get with each show that we do, but I know that just listening to you expands us in some way because it it beckons us to re-examine every belief that we've ever held as we as we navigate this time and Eric and I have often had conversations about the fact that we were born at a really unique time people in our age group um and and I've celebrated that and cherished that and I also feel that what you're sharing with us is 
is something so profound, it's going to take a little bit of integration time after this show to really dissect and integrate where each one of us sits with all of that. I think this last three years has been a great in, um, unfoldment of looking into each one of our own personal psyches and being able to look across at someone else without judgment in just observation of where their psyche's at. Just, you know, it, it's kind of right in our face with each person we meet or, or, or how we're interacting with each other during this time. And one of the things that I think is, is probably what I hold most dear in my heart is how we usually end the show with the, the statement that we say, and we encourage people to be good humans and not to lose that human aspect of ourselves, which holds compassion and empathy and, and love within each one of our hearts. And, and that passion for life and for the, the gift that it was to be born in these bodies that feel so deeply upon this incredible blue planet that just has provided us with so much. And then there's that other side of me that that can feel the despair of what we've done with this gorgeous planet and, you know, the ch- by the choices that each one of us has made. And I'm not excluding myself from that, you know. Today I had a conversation with a friend about everything that's plastic and where does it go? It goes to our landfills. There's no away. And we're we're careless with how we use our dollars to, to buy things that are wrapped in plastic or, you know, even if you just go out to dinner and they give you the, the uh, styrofoam containers, you know, we, we see what all the, the people on earth, all the choices that we're faced with, but we've kind of become numb to it. So I think now is a, is a time to re-examine all of that. And I like that you put, you know, you kind of gave us a call to action <laughs> with that on you know, how do we want to live the rest of our days? Who, how that, that's, that's our. Well, I would just up the ante a bit and say in, in, in closing, mm-hmm. I don't think that's it with all due respect. I think this is it. How do you imagine, who do you think you will be to the generation that's being conceived as we're having this conversation? Mm. Because those are the greater stakes than how it's working out for you personally. Incredible that that how many pregnant people do we see right now, and how do we yeah. how do we approach them? That is that is definitely something to ponder. Right, because the single use plastic will have more consequence for that baby in the womb than it'll have for you or me. Yeah, very true. Yeah, yeah. Well, we would like to encourage all of our listeners to go to Stephen's website, orphanwisdom.com. Look up the uh, tour dates so that you can hopefully catch them in person. And And I hope to be there on Thursday, Stephen. I didn't commit because I'm having uh, a little procedure done tomorrow. So we'll see how I feel before I make the drive up to LA on Thursday. Um, okay. But I hope to be able to see you in person again while you're here. And um share that time and i definitely would do you have your books for sale at these events is yeah, the reckoning every, there yeah the the records the cds the whole works will be there yeah 
Great. And they're also available on your website. Yeah, that's true. But this way, you know, you save the, the, I was going to say mileage, you save the postage. (laughs) Right. Save the mileage, yeah. (laughs) You don't save the mileage, you do save the postage. That postage just keeps going up, up, and up. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. I, I, I really appreciate all you've shared with us tonight. It gives us a lot to think about and to to integrate, digest, and come, you know, do more homework. Come explore your website and all these interviews that you've done. I see that your book is now in Hebrew. There's a lot going on uh, with your yeah, book. Yeah, just got translated in, in Israel, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so yeah. much. Uh, we appreciate you having, uh, you know, the time to share with us again uh, for a second time here on Awakening Code Radio. And it is a lot to a lot to think about. It's diving into the deep end of the pool and mm-hmm. uh, and hopefully being able to swim. Yeah. <laughs> and hopefully there being water in the pool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's hope there's <laughs> water in the pool for everybody. All right. Well, thank Good. you so much. And we want to... Uh, Acknowledge all of our listeners, all of our podcast listeners with gratitude for being, uh, you know, we hear from so many of you uh, throughout the week. Our admin, Colleen, is uh, on task always to make sure that we get messages and keeping up uh, us up to date. And we will see you, listener, next week with another show. And uh, be sure to check out uh, Stephen's work, uh, whether it's his books or if you can catch his, uh, he does Kind of, it's very cool. He does kind of, a, a, what would you call it? Spoken word narration with with really good music behind it that drops you ever deeper into into this vibe. Yeah, we start there. So that's for sure. Yeah, mm. awesome. Thanks so much for the invitation this evening. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you very so much, welcome. Stephen. Thank you, and thank Natalie too. We'll do. Good okay. night now. Bye bye. All right then. Lots to lots to. Thank you to our ponder. live listeners. I had mm-hmm. a few writing in. Um, and I wasn't able to, I couldn't, mm. best question ever is what Don, Don wrote in. So yeah, it looks like we had a lot of, um, there's a lot there to unpack yes. for sure. <laughs> there is for sure. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I think we'll call this one a show in the can. Right. And I think next week we don't, I think next week is actually KX Takeover. They moved it. Did they? They did. I saw an email today that they moved it okay. to January. Oh, did they? Mm-hmm. Okay. So. Well, let's think ahead to that because KX FM is a nonprofit radio station. We definitely want to invite our listeners to participate in helping KX FM and Awakening Code Radio stay on the air by your, your um, helpful donations. That's how the station is run, is by donations. And you can do that at any time. I mean, there. if you go to uh, KXFM dot, kxfmradio.org, mm-hmm. yeah, and there's always a place to support the station and uh, different tabs. You can make messages and say, hey, we're just supporting the station and Awakening Code Radio or whatever you'd like to say. And on that, we will check out and remind you as we remind ourselves to always do our best to be, be good humans. humans. We'll see you next right week, everybody. it our podcast with Stephen Jenkinson and like I said at the beginning if you listened all the way through this podcast 
you got to the question that Eric and I asked about if there's still hope. And neither one of us expected the answer that Stephen gave. We were at the very end of the show and he had his perspective. And both Eric and I believe there is always hope. And we don't want to leave our listeners with the feeling that there's no hope. So we had a talk after we recorded this show. And one of the things that we talked about was throughout history, there have been many accounts of miracles that happen. And there's never a reason to give up hope. So we want to invite you to come back next week for our next episode when we have a conversation with Drew and his wife, Maria Brophy. Drew is a local artist in Laguna, very famous artist, and he had a near-death experience this time last year. He was put on a ventilator when he had the virus, and he and Maria will be here next week to talk about how he came back from this near-death experience, and he's here to share about that miracle. So I hope you'll tune in next week when we do the show called Miracles Do Happen. Thank you again for listening to Awakening Code Radio. We so appreciate every one of our listeners, and we do this with love in our hearts, and we wish you a happy holiday season. This is Eric Rankin and Michelle Anderson from Awakening Code Radio right here on KXFM. We'd like to invite you to join a conversation to raise the vibration. Broadcasting live every Tuesday night from 8 to 10 p.m., we cover all aspects of the process of awakening, whether it's emotional or spiritual growth. And have hosted such luminaries as Deepak Chopra, Marianne Williamson, James Redfield, and many others. With a global audience, our show is one of the most listened to programs here at KXFM. And we would love for you to join the conversation. 